This paid program may not represent the views of Hubbard Broadcasting Incorporated or Federal News Radio. Statements and opinions of this broadcast are solely those of individual contributors or advertisers as indicated. Federal News Radio does not take responsibility for those statements or opinions and accepts no responsibility or liability for any inaccuracy, errors, or omissions reported during this program. Welcome to the Business of Government Hour, a conversation about management with a government executive who is changing the way government does business. The Business of Government Hour is produced by the IBM Center for the Business of Government, which was created in 1998 to encourage discussion and research into new approaches to improving government effectiveness. You can find out more about the center by visiting us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. And now, the Business of Government Hour. Welcome to a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, exploring technology and innovation efforts among state governments. I'm Michael Keegan, your host and leadership fellow at the IBM Center for the Business of Government. What is the IT strategy for the state of North Dakota? How is technology helping the state in its COVID-19 pandemic response? And what is the state of North Dakota doing to innovate its IT infrastructure? I'll explore these questions and so much more with my very special guest, Sean Riley. Chief Information Officer for the state of North Dakota. Sean, welcome to the show. It's great to have you. Thank you for having me. Happy to be here. So, Sean, let's start off with some basics. Um, Would you describe the mission of your office, and how does it support the overall mission of the state of North Dakota? Sure. So, so Michael, we are the North Dakota Information Technology Office, and in that office, we basically run the vast majority of technology, infrastructure, cybersecurity, and applications for really the whole of state government. Um, We have almost all of the technology responsibilities across the executive branch. We also support the uh, judicial branch and legislative branch with their aspects of infrastructure and cybersecurity and some of their applications. And then we also have the backbone network that enables the connectivity out to K-12, higher ed, cities, and counties. So on a day-to-day basis, we have about 252,000 customers at any point. So about a quarter million customers that we help keep uh, enabled with technology on a day-to-day basis. That's great, Sean. So I was wondering, you know, the scale of operation, the scale of size of your office, um, can you give us a sense of how your office is organized, the size of its budget, size of the staff? Yeah, so as far as uh, government IT goes, we're a, we're a small to medium size. We're about a $400 million organization. Uh, we've got about 500 FTEs and about another 700 contractors that are part of the team. So a team of about 1,200 people that are helping every day to, to really manage all the systems we have across the board. Uh, we've got uh, several thousand applications. And uh, really, it's really about empowering all of these different forms of government. So we have just a vast diversity of technology that we have to manage every day. But it's a it's a good sized organization in the private sector, but it's it's a small to medium in the government space. Terrific context. So, you know, I was wondering, you you gave us the mission, you gave us the uh, scope of the portfolio you lead. What are your responsibilities and duties, Sean, as the chief information officer? for the state of North Dakota? Sure, as CIO, I report to Governor Burgum, and I'm a cabinet member. And my role is to help 
empower people, improve lives, and inspire success on a day-to-day basis. And that is the, the purpose statement for the state of North Dakota. And what we do is we really try to work with every customer, every agency, K-12, higher ed, whoever it needs to be, to make sure that they can deliver a better service. And we want to be able to empower them to be able to serve their citizen. And that's really what we do on a day-to-day basis is work with all of these you know, hundreds of different customers to make sure they can get their job. Very interesting. So, you know, given those responsibilities and duties, um, what are your top, say, three management challenges that you have faced in your position and how have you sought to address those challenges? Yeah, so top management challenges uh, this year would be COVID. Uh, just uh, number one, number two, and number three would be COVID this year. The reality is, is that uh, we have had to basically park our entire strategic plan and park everything we were doing to be able to help empower different agencies and organizations to take on the COVID. And whether that be for standing up lab systems for the Department of Health or whether it's uh, standing up social distancing technology for Department of Transportation or helping K-12 schools being able to have home and education curricula. Uh, everything has been COVID this year. In a normal year, uh, in a normal year, there's always the, the, the typical budgets aspect and there's the typical staffing and getting talent. But the, the evolution of what we're doing with the state of North Dakota is we are trying to figure out how might we provide world-class technology and services on a day-to-day basis. And we don't want to be your typical government IT uh, stereotype anymore. We want to be that absolute organization that can deliver bigger, better services than people had expected. And so we've we've been shifting ourselves in a normal basis. But this year, it's been all COVID. We'd be remiss in not mentioning the pandemic. You're right. So, you know, what has surprised you most since taking on your current role? And, and perhaps maybe not so much related to the pandemic. You know, I, I came from healthcare, so I was a, a regional executive uh, for a large healthcare organization in my previous world. I've always been a private sector guy. The, the two things that, that have really surprised me, I would say one is the, the way in which government manages its money. Uh, most of the operations actually are very similar to private sector sites, but the way in which we manage our money tends to make it much harder to get our jobs done. And it also makes it so in some cases, we're actually more expensive than we should be because we have to spend money in one bucket and we can't spend it in another bucket. So maybe I have to spend money re- reactively and can't be proactive. And that that kind of thing really surprised me. I, I expected government to want to be as highly effective and efficient as possible. And we don't always find that. The second part I would say is that uh, a lot of people who are part of, especially state government, aren't, they, they aren't invested in the same purpose. They're all invested in different purposes and different directions. So whereas a private sector company, you have an organization that the board of directors is there to support your mission, your vision, your goals. That doesn't entirely happen in government. You get a lot of people who have very different missions, visions, and goals, and we end up uh, really not being able to be as enterprise as we should be able. 
especially in a place like ours where we have, quote unquote, all seven branches of government in our purview. Sean, that's a great segue into learning more about you. Could you tell us a little bit more about your career path? Um, what brought you to your current leadership role? Yeah, so uh, an interesting story, but um, I started out my career in IT the same way every 16-year-old kid does. I started a company. And <laughs> so I started a company at 16, and I sold that company uh, at the age of 19 uh, and was a was a great thing. But I... A couple of years later, ended up being in this very strange personal situation. The one, September the 4th of 2001. Everybody remembers September of 2001, but September the 4th, uh, I ended up spontaneously becoming the guardian of two of my brothers and one of my sisters. So here I am, this 22-year-old kid who all of a sudden had a 16, 14, and 12-year-old who I needed to figure out how to take care of. And it shifted me from being a person who wanted to conquer the world to somebody who wanted to figure out how to help the world. And with that, then I was working for IBM uh, at that point. So I sold my company. I went to work for uh, nuclear power, nuclear power, then to IBM. And at that point from IBM, I said, I, I want to do something more than, than make money for the world. I want to be able to do something that really helps the world. So I'm, I moved from there to Mayo Clinic. And at Mayo Clinic, I started out, I was a help desk manager over a grand total of three people at one of the small regional sites for Mayo. And within a year's time, I was the help desk manager and the network manager. And I had a programming team. And a year after that, I was a director. And a year after that, I was a CIO. And by the time I'm 28, I was the um, information management officer and convergence management officer for the health system, Mayo Clinic Health System, which was an organization at that point of 19 hospitals and 72 clinics. So within just a few years, I had been a CIO, a CMO, an IMO, a CTO. Uh, my daughter thought it was hilarious. She put a little sign on my door. I'm sure prompted by her mother, but put a sign on my door that said Chief EIEIO. And that's basically what my title ended up being. Um, and I just took on everything I could. Well, and I took on a lot of projects that everybody else uh, would shy away from because they were crazy projects. So I literally had this reputation where you could go out to Google and, and Google crazy CIO and my face would show up. And uh, with that, uh, when Governor Burgum came into North Dakota as a governor, I had never met the governor. I had never uh, interacted with him. Knew him by reputation simply because he was a big IT guy himself. But uh, they looked around and said, uh, where do we find a crazy CIO? <laughs> and sure enough, my name showed up. And I get a text message that says, hey, we'd like to talk to you. And uh, Governor brings me up into North Dakota, sit down, go through the application process, and sit down with him. And when I walk in, he's, he's, he's the governor of a state. I'm, I've met a, a couple in my life. And, and I was instantly surprised because I walk into his office. And here's a guy in blue jeans and a, and a blue jacket. And he asked me to come in and sit down. He's got this little purple ball, this yoga ball. And he rolls the yoga ball and he sits down on that and says, sit down, let's have a conversation. And in the middle of legislative session, when he's probably one of the busiest human beings on the planet, he spends two hours talking to me about what he wanted to do to be able to make the world a better place. And at the end of the interview, he says, so what do you think? And I said, well, sir, uh, I need to call my wife, but I'm in. So after that, uh, we went to North Dakota, and I actually I'd spent a grand total of one trip to North Dakota before. I'd never been uh, 
Bismarck. Never really spent much time in the state other than going fishing. Um, and I was uh, super excited to be there. And the governor has not disappointed. He is doing everything he can to help really impact the world in a positive way. And that's that's what's brought me to where I am today. So, Sean, given your background in the private sector and technology, you know, I was wondering, what is your leadership uh, style like? And, and perhaps you could outline for me some of the key leadership principles you follow. And more importantly, in your mind, um, given your background, what characteristics make an effective leader? I personally really embrace the servant leadership model, or at least I try to. <laughs> and the reality is, is that um, we're always trying to improve ourselves on a daily basis. But I, I've actually taken more classes for servant leadership than I took to get my master's program. Um, I, I really wanted to find ways in which I could be a better leader. And with that, I still do con- continuous learning and podcasts and audiobooks on a constant basis. But the characteristics you're looking for is first, we need to be people who have uh, humility. And we we need to understand humility. And humility is something that's not well understood in America today, and especially in the upper Midwest, right? Most most folks think of humility as walking around staring at your feet. But what humility is, is it is an accurate reflection of self. You have to understand what are you good at? What are you not good at? Enable those things you're good at and improve what you're not good at. And on top of that, you need to be an active listener. You have to listen to your team. You have to take into account what they have. You want to empower your people. Make sure they have the ability to get their job done. And one of the things I try to ask in every one of my one-on-ones is, what can I do to help you? Um, I want to end every one of my one-on-ones with that. What do you need from me? How can I help you? And we want to make sure that you remove barriers from people and let them get their work done. But on top of all that comes a growth mindset. And the growth mindset is really thinking about what's possible. For me, there's no such thing as impossible. There's just something we haven't figured out yet. And the reality is, is you want to be able to take on the world that way, uh, especially in government. Yes, there's tons of laws. Yes, there's tons of challenges. Yes, there's always people in the way of everything. But the reality is, is can it be done? Yes, it can. The question is, how? How do we get there? And that's how I really approach leadership. What is the IT strategy for the state of North Dakota? I will ask its chief information officer, Sean Riley, when the conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour. To support government financial performance and accountability, financial systems must meet certain standards, and relying on outdated financial systems inhibits progress. ERP vendors are encouraging clients to move to the cloud and consider new technologies such as robotic process automation, blockchain, and AI to enhance financial productivity. Download the IBM Center Report Financial Management for the Future at businessofgovernment.org to learn why and how government can evolve to meet the demands of a digital world. The Ebola crisis in West Africa from 2014 to 2016 was an epidemic that put emphasis on global capacity to respond to international disasters. How can government better assess the needs of those affected and help them? The IBM Center Report Responding to Global Health Crisis by Professor Jennifer Widner breaks down the U.S. response to the Ebola crisis and provides insights on lessons learned that may aid the government responses in the future. 
Download your free copy, Responding to Global Health Crisis, at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and our guest today is Sean Riley, Chief Information Officer for the state of North Dakota. Sean, information, data, and technology are strategic assets for governments and play a critical role in meeting its varied missions. So to that end, Sean, what are your key IT strategic priorities? Yeah, so from an IT vision, what we've we've taken this from an aspect of we need to reinvent people, process, and experience to deliver world-class outcomes. And that supports our vision. And our vision is in a question, in the form of a question. You don't see a lot of organizations do this. But we ask the question, how might we provide world-class technology and services? So we evaluated ourselves, our own operations. We evaluated the technology landscape across the state. And what we found is that we've got a lot of places we're doing really well and a lot of places we're not. And with that, it's the exact same as any other organization. But we wanted to take a little different twist on how we would fix those problems. So we've looked at this and said, we want to comprehensively replace all ancient technology within the state of North Dakota. No more mainframes, no more systems that are older than I am, uh, no more databases that no one learns in schools anymore, no more programming systems that haven't been taught for 40 years. All this stuff needs to go away. Uh, And with that, as we build these new architectures that secure data and allows for a comprehensive transformation of that technical debt, we want to enable the ability to automate 20% of all work in government. So we want to be able to make it possible that we can automate 20% of all work. So with that means, I want to get rid of commodity work. I want to get rid of repeating work. I want to get uh, rid of predictable work. I want to get rid of mundane work. And I want to get rid of boring work. All of that wraps together in automating 20% of all work in government. With that then allows us to be able to really think differently about all technology across the state. So if I were to put this into bullet points, what's my strategic bullet point? It's build new architectures to secure data and allow for comprehensive transformation of tech debt. It is automate 20% of all work in government, and it is reinvent people, processes, and experiences to deliver world-class outcomes. Those are, have been our three strategies that are core to how we're delivering services for the last couple of years. And then, as you said, COVID came, and we had to enable that, but shift a little bit. Yeah, as a follow-up, what are some of the key internal and external drivers and trends that have shaped and informed your IT strategy? Yeah, so from an external and internal standpoint, so one is externally, we have to realize that the government is a competitive market space. Most folks don't think of government that way. They think of government as a non-competitive environment. But the reality is, is we compete with private sector and other governments all the time. Uh, We compete for them for companies to come into our states. We compete for them for resources in our teams. We compete for the the FTEs and that that skilled talent every day. So we had to look at that and say, what can we do going forward to make sure that we have the best platforms of people and the best platforms of technology? 
So part of that is, is that uh, when you look at things like mainframes, uh, every single state still got mainframes, federal government's got mainframes. We've all got this cool tech that's, you know, 40, 45 years old at its base level. And the people that support that technology are all retiring. They're all, they're all moving on to the next phase of their life. And there's very, very little resource out there. That's something that's got to go away. You've got to enable today's technology. I can't bring in a new college graduate and say, here, sit down, learn this green screen app where we're not even using control C and control V for copy and paste because it's, you know, control shift F1 from 45 years ago. We've got to be able to enable that new mindset of using comprehensive technology from today. The other side from an external standpoint is that the citizens just don't put up with this kind of experience anymore. Uh, ask Everybody listening to the show, raise your hand if you love standing in line somewhere. And I guarantee you, doesn't matter where they are, who's listening, nobody's raising their hand. Nobody wants to stand in line. Nobody wants to have to take a day off work so they can go stand in line at some service that they should be able to get on their phone. And the expectations of our citizens is just vastly, vastly higher. And nobody wants to sit on the phone for hours and hours on end. We saw a lot of that during COVID all across the country. Unemployment systems, totally overwhelmed. People sitting on phones for days on end sometimes in some place. Nobody wants that experience. We can fix that through technology. And that's part of what's really pushed us forward. The third, both internal and external aspect, just comes to revenues. Governments can't raise taxes in perpetuity. They have to manage the dollars they have. We have finite resource. And people say that to me all the time. Say, hey, you don't understand. In government, we have finite resource. And well, welcome to every place I've ever been in. They're all like that. Nobody has infinite resource. The difference is, is that the method of obtaining that resource is uh, more complex in government. So we have to be able to look at this and say, I must be vastly more effective with what I have. And automating 20% of all work in government has a huge impact to the staffing, has a huge impact to systems, and it has a huge impact to outcomes for the value to that citizen. So all of that wrapping together were some of the inputs that we took to determine what our strategies would be and how we would deliver those. You know, Sean, before we delve into specific initiatives, what has been the most challenging issues you've had to face in dealing with the COVID-19 pandemic response? You know, I'll give you I'll give you a handful. So, as I said before, we have we have two hundred and fifty two thousand end users that we manage on a day to day basis. In a period of about forty eight hours, the entire executive branch went from being on prem to remote. Over a period of about four days, the entirety of K twelve went from being on prem to remote. Uh, about the same for higher ed. Uh, cities and counties, they had a little more uh, variability to the amount of time. But the reality is, is that we had this huge shift from what was less than 4% of our workforce working remotely to almost 98% of our workforce having to need the ability to work remotely, stabilized around 75%, but still a huge portion of all those users that just had to shift. That was a massive shift for us for telework. Uh, spinning up all kinds of systems, just even getting equipment, uh, all of a sudden putting in an order for 6,000 laptops and say, I need them in the next 48 hours. That makes your vendors' uh, faces turn white really fast. The technology we had to spin up 
had to move incredibly fast. We had to spin up another 10,000 VPN licenses per day for a while to be able to make sure that we could get folks uh, into the systems. Um, just be able to move that. In the lab environments where we had a central lab for the Department of Health, they, of course, did not do COVID testing before this happened because no one did. And they were doing about 200 tests a day all on population health. We had to scale them to be able to do 8,000 tests a day. Uh, the lab systems weren't there. The, the uh, instruments weren't there. The systems for output and input weren't there. We had to spin up data environments all over the place. Then you go to like the unemployment phone systems. The unemployment phone systems were taking 18, 20,000 calls a day and coming from an environment where they were only taking a couple hundred calls a day before. We had to ramp up all new phone systems, all of these kind of things. And, and we literally have hundreds of projects like this. The IT team uh, did over 16,000 hours of overtime in the first 60 days of the pandemic, and that hasn't let, let up yet. Um, most of my team is in that 80-hour weeks and have been since roughly the 15th of March. Few before that, few after. But the other side is, is we had to really be open-minded about how we approach these problems. So un unemployment was an example. So the unemployment team uh, from the job service organization was doing everything they could possibly do to answer phone calls. They were getting overrun. We're implementing technology, but there's a delta of time there to be able to help them with the technology. So we turned to our programming team and we took about 40% of our programmers and we made them unemployment phone call specialists. And we just pulled them all into the system. And now all of a sudden I've got a bunch of uh, very introverted people who are normally C-sharp and Java programmers who are answering phone calls from people who are new on unemployment. But it was something that we could do to help the gap with the citizen to make sure the citizen was getting a voice, uh, that they were being heard. And those kind of things happen all the time. We had team members who had never worked with healthcare at all, who got picked up and said, you're now a leader in the healthcare organization for X amount of time to get these systems done. And people had to change roles, they had to adapt. And so it wasn't just a technology problem, it was also a people and process problem to figure out what skills we have and how do we get this work done. Sean, would you tell us more about North Dakota's efforts to transform its fight against COVID-19 using scalable testing and contact tracing? Yes, contact tracing was something that was pretty new to the state. I mean, it was done on a very manual basis pre-COVID. And once COVID hits and you start getting hundreds or thousands of cases on a daily basis, all of a sudden your scale just immensely changes. So we undertook a project to build a contact tracing system. In our old world, in, in the way that things used to be done before we started our strategic reviews and started changing our processes, this project easily would have taken a year. We went in and built out a system with, with some of our vendor partners in this case, what we were able to do is build an application in eight days and had that deployed to the team. So it's an app that easily would have taken us a year in our old model, we had on the ground in use in eight days. It wasn't beautiful <laughs> and it wasn't perfect by any means, but it was absolutely there and they were able to use it. And in the next couple of days, we added support for mobile devices. And then in the next couple of days, we added support so that the National Guard, who are on the ground helping at the testing centers, 
could get access. And then a couple of days after that, we integrated, integrated it to our data platform so that we could push data across our entire environment for healthcare data. Um, that's the kind of stuff that we ended up having to do. On top of that, uh, we brought in additional partners to be able to get uh, what's called CARE 19. And the CARE 19 and now CARE, CARE 19 alert apps are, are apps that allowed people to put on your personal cell phone and see your interactions with uh, potential COVID folks and to be able to help in that contact tracing. We put a lot of effort into getting these deployed as fast as possible. We were one of the first states to have that done back in late March. Uh, we were able to have that app out, and we had about 35,000 downloads, I think, in the first 24 hours from citizens that were able to do contact tracing complements of their phone, which helped the contact tracing on the back end. So just a, a, a ton of software that all gets deployed in a super, super fast amount of time in comparison to the way the world used to work. Sean, given the evolving nature of the cyber threats that government agencies are constantly dealing with, um, the targeting of their networks and what have you, would you elaborate on your efforts to enhance IT security across the state agencies and across the enterprise? I will not automate systems if I cannot secure them. Uh, we cannot upgrade systems to modern 21st century technology if they cannot be secured. And I have an approach on this that I believe the moral responsibility of government for the security of data is vastly higher. And if you're in the private sector and you go to Walmart and Walmart loses your data, you can choose to go to Target. And if Target loses your data, you can choose to go to Amazon. And if Amazon loses your data, on and on and on. You have a choice as a customer, as a citizen. If your data is given to a government, for the most part, the only thing you have a choice about is whether you put your hands on your face and cry or just cry openly when they lose your day. The reality is, is that we have an absolute moral responsibility that we demand this data from our citizens. We must keep it secure. So from a state of North Dakota standpoint, we've taken this on a little differently. We brought forth Senate Bill 2110 in the last session uh, before COVID and in Senate Bill 2110, we looked for the ability to be able to manage cybersecurity across what we lovingly call all seven branches of government and do that centrally within the NDIT shared service. So as of last session in 2019, we have the ability to be able to manage executive branch, judicial branch, legislative branch, higher ed, K-12 city and county cybersecurity from a strategic perspective. We've also offered operational tool sets across the board. When all these schools started going into tele-education, the problem was is that we saw huge increases from external threat actors. Uh, we've seen lots of nation state actors, but just a huge amount of increase in attacks across the spectrum of a now tele-education and telework environment. So we made uh, our endpoint protection available. We made that available as of August 1st of this year. And by September 30th of this year, uh, we had over 108 school districts that were comprehensively deployed and comprehensively protected through our endpoint system. We're right now, we're still rolling out to a whole bunch of other school districts. Uh, we've been able to roll this out to some cities and counties, and we've covered 
the vast majority of the executive branch and made it available for the legislative and judicial branches as well. But we want to make sure that cybersecurity is absolutely at the forefront of all the technology that we deploy. So, Sean, as a follow-up, the expansion of cyber training and awareness efforts for state workers and education around the whole gambit is really critical. Can you tell us about the award-winning K20W initiative you are pursuing, and what else are you doing in the area of securing the network and infrastructure for the state of North Dakota? Yes, so we we started with our purpose in mind, empower people, improve lives, inspire success. And we asked ourselves a question. We said, name me a job that doesn't use computer technology. And I could probably sit here for a long time and not get an answer, right? And the reality is, is that a 21st century student is going to have a 21st century job. And today's jobs require computer technology. And we sat back and said, are we enabling our children the way they need to be enabled for the future? And when we got done with our analysis, what we came out with is that we need to have every student, every school, cyber educated, kindergarten through PhD. But what we enabled is computer science standards, cyber science standards. We integrated those standards. We taught over 5,000 teachers across the state. We implemented this in every single elementary, middle school, and high school in the state. We've added the integration now for every single university and, and institution of higher ed in the state. And we did that comprehensively across the entire state of North Dakota. And with all the standards and all the education up front, all completed in 11 months' time. So it's a comprehensive idea that tomorrow's workforce must have tomorrow's skills. And that's where we landed with a cyber-educated, every student across the board, kindergarten through PhD. Yeah, I want to transition a little bit to your approach to using cloud computing. What are you doing in the area of migrating to the cloud? What are some of the challenges in this area? And to what extent is the concern about cloud security more perception than reality? Well, there's, there's a lot of concern about security in the cloud. And I think a lot of that really boils down to an aspect of control, and a lot, an aspect of maybe not understanding what controls are in place within the cloud. There are certainly handfuls of use cases where an on-prem environment is still necessary. Uh, but for the vast, vast majority of what we manage, the reality is, is that the cloud is more secure. And when it comes with denial of service protections by default, when it comes with the ability to do automatic provisioning by default, when it comes with automated encryption all by default, encryption in transit and encryption in REST, uh, all of those kind of things, there's a lot of advantages to the cloud. Now, the reality is, is that using the cloud doesn't automatically make you secure. It just automatically gives you some security components that you would have had to manage separately individually before. Uh, there's some great advantages to being a cloud, but you still have to bring yourself up to your comprehensive security. Now, that is something that is different for a lot of folks, and they don't necessarily understand it. It's something that they have to go through definitely an education process and get there. But from a challenge standpoint, when you ask about that, the, the challenge in government really comes down to the financial structure. Capital 
and OPEX are very different in the government space. And um, at least in our world, um, our government checkbook is managed like a checkbook. If I have $1, I can only spend $1. The fact that I'm going to get paid next Thursday doesn't matter. Um, and that becomes very complicated for cloud computing. And it comes, becomes complicated for the ROI for a lot of places because they look at this and go, well, I can't manage the OPEX, even though I know that over a three-year, five-year term, this is much cheaper than on-prem. I can't manage that OPEX, and they can't do that conversion. So, Sean, I'd like to explore your efforts at modernizing infrastructure and systems. What are you doing to modernize the state's IT infrastructure? Yeah, our, our core component really comes around that ancient technology. We've kind of really branded everything that is uh, of an old platform that doesn't allow a scalability in, in today's world doesn't allow mobility in today's world, doesn't allow us to use uh, automation in today's world. All that stuff falls under this ancient technology bucket. And we've really focused on getting rid of and not not necessarily modernizing. I know a lot of people like this term modernizing, but we really, I don't want to modernize something from 1978 up to 1997. I want to comprehensively transform it from 1978 to 2020. And that's what we're doing is we're trying to skip that modernization step in a lot of places because it really doesn't add the value you want to have. You need to be able to jump into current modern day architectures that allows you to be able to get data shared, that allows you to be able to be secure, that allows you to be able to empower the experience for the citizen or the customer in this case. Uh, but we're doing that all across our technology base. Uh, within the state of North Dakota. How is the state of North Dakota leveraging technology and innovation in its pandemic response? I will ask its chief information officer, Sean Riley, when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour. How does an agency decide upon and implement a performance management framework that will be successful for their specific administration? The IBM Center Report, a practitioner's framework for measuring results, follows the implementation and results of the CSTAT management framework in Colorado's Department of Homeland Security in hopes that it can guide others who may want to institute a similar approach. Download a practitioner's framework for measuring results by Melissa Wavelet on businessofgovernment.org today. Agile methodology has allowed for agencies to keep up with the growing demands for fast response to problem solving. The Opportunity Project, TOP, serves as a catalyst in adapting agile techniques to solve complex agency mission problems. TOP works with federal agencies to identify challenges and facilitate iterative approaches in response. In the IBM Center Report, Agile Problem Solving in Government, Joel Gurin and Katerina Ribello discuss the factors of success involved in TOP. Download your free copy today at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and our guest today is Sean Riley, Chief Information Officer for the state of North Dakota. You know, it's obvious talking to you, Sean, the customer expectation is a key priority for you. So with that in mind, can you tell us more about your efforts in this area? How do you anticipate the technology needs of your customers, the state agency leaders, and how do you work with them to identify better ways to use technology to change how they achieve their missions? Um, so a couple of things. So one, 
is we've created a new division and that division is called customer success. And so I have a chief customer success officer. Uh, he came into this role in July. I feel sorry for him that he had to come in in the middle of the pandemic, but uh, he's doing an awesome job. And we are designing a division whose purpose it is to interact with our customers, understand what their true needs are. What are they trying to get done from an operational standpoint? What are their real strategies? That's what we're changing out is when I first arrived at the state, people would come to me and say, hey, I want this widget. Cool, here's your widget. And I made the assumption they knew why they needed it, what it was going to solve. Well, when you start getting into the realities is most of the time they don't. The customer has a use case that is going to solve, but they don't necessarily know how it applies from a strategic level. So our customer success organization helps the customer realize what are they really trying to get done and how can technology really empower that outcome? So that's a huge portion of what we're doing. The other side is, is really a focus on that end user and what is the end user's experience? And the end user today doesn't want to have to go through this, you know, this huge gargantuan website. They want something that's succinct and easy to use. They don't want to know what agency provides a service. They don't, they don't need to know uh, that Game & Fish provides a fishing license and that DOT provides a driver's license. All they know is that they need their license. And what we're working through is a unified approach for an application that we call the gateway. And that gateway application enables people to get to whatever service they need without necessarily having to know or care what the agency is. So it gives them a much more streamlined experience and a, and a much faster interaction with government. How are you using data analytics to not only improve services and quality of those services, but also perhaps to identify new solutions and services? Yeah, data analytics is a, is a good step for us. Uh, we are really trying to empower analytics across the state. But one of the major challenges is that every agency individually owns its data. So this is a big improvement area for us. We've got a unified data platform that we're building. We've got lots of concepts around how to be able to properly use data lakes to be able to get to resolution. But the reality is, is that agency after agency after agency is very isolated in its data, and they don't necessarily need to share it. So what we're trying to work through now is a, is a different methodology to enable data to the end user. And that's that's going to take some legislative action uh, to be able to help us uh, adjust rules so that we can make sure that we can share systems and data across the board. So Sean, some have posited IT modernization is not enough. You know, rather than simply modernizing systems, agencies really need to create a dynamic IT environment that can evolve as requirements evolve. I was wondering, why is IT modernization not enough in your mind? What are the implications of digital transformation and how does it offer an IT model that is both flexible and scalable? And I guess what I'm asking is, what does it take to get from modernization 
to transformation. Yeah, I, I don't I don't believe that modernization is enough. I believe that we're at the point that we need a comprehensive transformation of our architecture. Our architectures right now simply don't enable, as you asked before, data analytics. They don't enable us to serve the citizen with a streamlined experience. Um, it doesn't enable us to be able to have a long-term fast moving agile approach to improvement. Um, the reality is, is that modernization, and I'll, I'll give one example of a modernization project. We have one project uh, was deployed back in the 1980s, uh, was updated multiple times through the 90s, and here now is looking at another update. And the vendor wants $7 million to be able to bring us up to technology that was expired back in 2004. And I look at that and I just do not see the value there. And what we really need to do is enable a comprehensive architecture across our environment that allows us to be able to get to all those 21st century advantages that we have. And it's weird being in the year 2020, right? We're a fifth of the way through the decade or through the century already. And we're still talking about getting into the 21st century. Uh, that in itself should say, look, modernization is not enough. We should be talking about 2020 tech, not getting up to the year 2000. So Sean, this is a great segue into the next question. What are you doing to spur innovation across your IT enterprise? The, the number one thing is we want to inspire curiosity. And there's a lot of people get very programmatic about innovation. There's a lot of organizations that are, here's your innovation team, and they're dedicated to think differently and those kind of things. The reality is, is every single person you have has the ability to think differently. Every single person in your organization probably knows something right now, right off the top of their head, that we can implement that would make their job better or the job of someone around them better. So what we want to inspire is we want to inspire curiosity, ask questions, right? This goes back to, to kids when they're six years old, they're asking uh, you know, 150 questions a day. By the time they're 12 years old, they're only asking 20 questions a day. By the time they're a senior in high school, they're only asking two questions a day. We want to turn that back on. We need to turn that back on so they can ask, how are we doing this work? Can we do it better? What if we change how we're doing this work? How might we do this better? Those questioning aspects spur innovation. You know, having people just ask the questions creates conversation, creates opportunity, and it has people looking around saying, yeah, why aren't we doing this better? That's the number one thing that we do within our team to spur innovation. So Sean, what emerging technologies, be it uh, robotic process, automation, machine learning, or AI, hold the most promise for helping you achieve your priorities? And how do you assess your department's strengths and weaknesses in exploiting the pace of IT innovation today? Yeah, so we, we have an amazing amount of emerging technology platforms that we've been talking through. So RPA, machine learning, AI are all absolutely on the, the top of our list from the aspect of how do we automate 20% of the work within government? 
Um, those three components are all essential to helping us do that. Robotic process automation uh, has been something we've been deploying now for a year and a half as we automate work across the board. Machine learning and AI are really getting used in the bigger mission. And the bigger mission as we look at things, as we think about the future, is we're going to be looking at IoT platforms, Internet of Things platforms that are immensely huge. Right, So the state of North Dakota barely has a million people in it, but we're talking about a billion sensors with a B that could be in the state over the next 10 years. And that's everything from water clarity, right? How sensors in agriculture areas to determine are we getting enough water on the crops to determine uh, are the, the crops growing the way they should be. Management of roads and traffic across those roads and we already today, we have intelligent sensors in uh, much of our highway system so that you can determine today, right now, when a car drives over the highway, what relative size that car is, how is that road performing from a, from a pothole standpoint. The other thing that we're looking at using this for and is going to be used for is the road has acoustic fiber in it and can actually detect when it's snowing, detect when it's raining. And we know when we need to send the snow plows and we know how much material needs to go on the ground. So it will better for the environment that way, much, much more economical that way. That sensor environment is exploding. And within North Dakota, we also have two major projects. One's called Grand Sky. One is Grand Farm. Those two large projects. Uh, Grand Farm is how do we create an autonomous farm? comprehensively autonomous farm, all being managed through robotic technologies, AI, machine learning, et cetera. Grand Sky is all based on drones and was one of the largest test drone sites in the world. And with that drone site, it's actually being expanded now to the entire state. So we'll have this large, large drone test site for the entire state. With that comes huge amounts of machine learning, huge amounts of AI. And all of that is integrated as we go forward. We look at what what does 2020 look like? What is 2050 going to look like? It's going to have vastly more machines. It's going to have vastly more automation, vastly more machines that can take care of that, that mundane, repeating, predictable, boring work. And that's really where we're going to go. So emerging technologies are just going to be huge, and it's going to get way, way bigger as we keep going. Sean, I'd like to transition to the workforce question. Um, how do you empower your employees to drive change across your teams? And what actions are you taking to build a workforce that is competent and skilled to deal with the issues you're dealing with today and into the future? It's, it's really about culture. And the reality is, is that uh, coming from state government, this is, the, this is the weirdest pitch you'll ever hear. But when I get a great candidate who comes in the door, first thing I tell them is, hey, I pay for crap but you're going to love working here. And most people don't lead with that. But what we start with is, yeah, salary is not the reason you should come here. The reason you should come here is because you want to change the world. And that is what we are building as a culture. How are we empowering people, improving lives, inspiring success? How are we using our growth mindset and our courage and our humility to empower our citizens. 
And all of that is working together from a cultural standpoint to build a new team. And the reality is, and especially for your listeners that come from state government, uh, look at your salary, look at your team salary. Everybody in that team, if they're working in IT, can go somewhere else and get paid more across the board. Uh, just endlessly a problem right now is a huge potential of flight outbound. So the people that you need to attract have to be people who are there because of their heart, not their wallet. And that is what we've brought in. Is we brought in an organization of people, our new leadership and our new directors and new executives uh, are people who could easily go double their salary somewhere else, but they're there because they see the opportunity to serve and see that opportunity to create something that just doesn't exist anywhere else. And that's been how we've been able to really bring in a workforce and help change our workforce to start moving towards those, those incredible new things of RPA and machine learning and AI and data intelligence and et cetera, et cetera. I mean, um, that's, that's how you move the organization. Sean, given the critical role information technology plays in mission and program delivery, how has the role of chief information officer evolved into that of a trusted advisor? And more importantly, in your mind, what are the characteristics of an effective CIO? So a CIO from years ago, I would say, was basically managing finance, right? Most organizations in, the, in history, uh, if you go back the last 30, 40 years, your CIOs came out of the CFO verticals. And you saw technology enabling the finance department. And that has all evolved to technology is the strategic tip of the spear that enables every department. And in today's world, a CIO needs to be incredibly aware of the operations of the business. In the old world, right, that was part of what the CFO did. They understood the business so they could maximize dollars. Today's CIO needs to understand the business so they can maximize value and outcome. And whether that's for a not-for-profit organization or a public service organization or a for-profit organization, it's really the smart. They've got to be an individual who can look at the business operations and say, how can I maximize what value you're trying to obtain? And with that, of course, comes uh, a, a huge personality aspect. You have to be able to dig into technology. You have to be willing to dig into operations. And you have to really be able to understand your customer and build that relationship with the customer. In our case, one of the things we do, and not just the CIO, not just myself, but many of our other leaders, I encourage a process I call gowning up. And the gown up process is that we become the customer to our customer. We go through their processes. So for where we have medical organizations, we become the patient. For where we work with corrections, we become the inmate. Uh, when, when it came to highway patrol, I'm, I'm in the passenger seat riding along, watching the officer go do tickets and help people out of the ditch and pick up uh, rubber tires on the side of the road and everything that a state patrol officer needs to do. It enables confidence from your customer. It enables intelligence with you so that you know what you can deliver 
and what you can't, and that you can be a much, much better trusted advisor across the board. Um, that's just the, the new world that we live in is, is if you're not trusted, you're not useful. And you have to be at that point. You have to be integrated to business operations to understand them so you can provide a better technology to enable them. That's wonderful. So, you know, Sean, my last question is around advice. What advice would you give someone who's thinking about a career in public service? You know, very simply, if you're looking to build a career in public service, focus, focus on what value you want to bring to the world. What do you want to change in the world? How are you trying to make the world a better place? And this is a little different than the, the legacy of people going into a job. Because in the legacy, it was, hey, how can I get paid half a million dollars? Right? Today, the reality is to said you're not going to make a half a million dollars in public service. It's not going to happen. What you have to understand is how do you want to make the world a better place? And where can you do that? And that's what I would advise somebody today. It's not about a job. It's about an outcome. It's about a vision. What can you do where you can make somebody else's life better? And consider that opportunity. And you will find something that just fills your heart every single day. And you'll find something where you can really, really empower yourself but you're also helping others at the same time. So Sean, I want to thank you for joining us today, taking some time out of your busy schedule. Thanks again. It was really insightful. Uh, thanks, Michael, for having me on. Happy to be here anytime. This has been the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with Sean Riley, Chief Information Officer for the state of North Dakota. Be sure to join us next week for another informative, insightful, and in-depth conversation on the intersection of technology government, and leadership. Until then, subscribe, download, listen to the entire interview at Podcast One, iTunes, Spotify, or on your favorite podcast app, and as always at businessofgovernment.org. For the Business of Government Hour, I'm Michael Keegan, and thanks for joining us. This has been the Business of Government Hour. Be sure to visit us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. There you can learn more about our programs and get a transcript of today's conversation. Until next week, it's businessofgovernment.org. How can government best use big data to transform decision-making, public services delivery, and communication? The IBM Center Report Integrating Big Data and Thick Data to Transform Public Services Delivery by Yan Yan Ang presents five recommendations for public managers introducing the concept of mixed analytics, urging thick data, meaning qualitative information about users, to be presented alongside big data to improve government decision-making. Visit businessofgovernment.org to read more.